The sermon today is taken from Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. This is the word of God. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impotent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works, to those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek, for God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, by Christ Jesus. Thus says the Lord. Let me pray for us one more time before we begin our sermon. Father, we come to you and beg you that you would illuminate our hearts in such a way that the words we hear in your passage be effective um, and received by our otherwise hard, impenetrable hearts. Make it soft, make it spiritually beat so that we would embrace it and love it. And I pray that uh, you would give your people such a grace um, and make the words in your scripture effective in their hearts beyond what mine can ever do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to continue on in our uh, s- series today through the book of Romans where we see Paul making his case still as to why everyone needs to receive the gospel, why everybody needs forgiveness from God. Remember, that's the claim that Paul made in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, that everyone needs forgiveness. And then from chapter 1, verse 18 onwards, uh, Paul is out to show that when he says everyone, he means everyone, right? So he starts listing different groups of people. And last week we saw in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32, that Paul here took 14 verses to address the immoral, licentious people, you know, who just kind of sin and do whatever they want. They don't believe in God. Those who are sexually promiscuous, those who are murderers, Paul says, evil, boastful, ruthless, haughty. This is all the words he chose in chapter 1. 
And if you know anything about the Greco-Roman culture, you, you would have an inclination that this description Paul uh, described in chapter 1 points to the non-Jewish people, right, the Gentiles. Because the Jews back then would not be these sexually promiscuous and licentious people. The Jews back then would usually be the religious, well-behaved kind of people, right? Now, as Paul's rebuking these irreligious non-Jews, Think about who might be cheering Paul on at this point, right? Who might be tempted to kind of smirk in the background going, you know, you, you tell him, Paul, tell those immoral, non-Yahweh worshiping Gentiles, tell those guys how much they need forgiveness. Who might be tempted to say that at this point? The Jews, the religious Jews, you know, and you can just see that the non-Jewish people here, the Gentiles are just kind of rolling their eyes. Here we go, you know, those religious Jewish people judging us again. So typical, so expected. But to everyone's surprise, it is at this precise point. In chapter 2, verse 1, all of a sudden, Paul turns around and looks at the Jews. <laughs> and he says to them what? In verse 1, you have no excuse either, every one of you who judges. Now, can you just imagine the shock in their eyes, right? Uh, their cheers just abruptly dying. And they're asking themselves, I thought Paul was on our side. Why is he against us now. And look, if Paul were rallying for a political campaign, he'd be doing a terrible job at this point, right? Because everyone knows, you know, pick a demographic, right? P pick a target audience. Who's your, who's your voting demographic going to be, liberals or conservatives? The left or the right, right? Which race? Which demographic? Who, who are you going for? And Paul here is saying neither because he's not trying to win votes, He's trying to convince people of the claim that he previously made in chapter 1, verse 16 to 17, that everyone needs the gospel. And when he says everyone, he means everyone. Yes, even really, really, really religious people. And actually, it's, it's really interesting. Last week we saw in chapter 1, verse 18 to 32, that Paul spends 14 verses trying to convince the immoral, irreligious person that they need forgiveness. You know how many verses Paul spends to convince the religious people that they need the gospel? It starts here in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 31. Paul spends 60 verses to convince the religious person they need forgiveness. Paul takes four times longer trying to convince the religious, moral, well-behaved, socially respected people that they need the gospel compared to the irreligious, immoral person. Why do you think that is? Well, because if anyone is to be blinded of their need for forgiveness, you know who it'd be? It'd be the religious person. It'd be the well-behaved and socially respected person. That person. It's much harder for that person. It's much trickier to convince that person that they need forgiveness, that they need the gospel. Why? Well, I think we at least see three reasons here in our passage of why it's hard to see the sins of a religious person. It's because, generally speaking, first point, they have good behavior. Second point, their sins don't have immediate consequences. And third point, they possess the law. They have good behavior, their sins don't have immediate consequences, and they possess the law. First point, it's hard to see the sins of a religious person because they have good behavior. Okay, if you notice, there's something odd about how Paul starts his rebuke in chapter 2. Remember, Paul just got done rebuking the immoral, non-religious people in chapter 1 for being filled with covetousness, envy, strife, haughtiness, boastfulness. And now Paul's switching targets in chapter 2, and he's rebuking the religious moralistic people for being what, verse 1 says, for being judgmental. But as he begins the rebuke in chapter 2, verse 1, 
Paul uses the word, therefore. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who judges. Do you see how that's a little bit odd? Wouldn't it sound so much more natural if Paul said, in one hand, you guys here, the immoral people, you guys are guilty of envy, boastfulness, haughtiness, conceit, and all that stuff. And on the other hand, you guys here, you guys are guilty of being judgy. That'd make more sense to say that, but that's not what Paul said. Paul said, you guys here are guilty of envy, boastfulness, haughtiness, conceited, uh, conceit. Therefore, you guys here also have no excuse for being judgy. He's connecting the two groups, trying to reveal that, yes, these are two different groups of people, but with the same sin. Because think about it. When you judge someone, when you put yourself above them, when you elevate yourself as better than them, you know what that means? That means you're being boastful. That means you're being haughty. That means you're being conceited. You know, that shows that you are an envious person because someone who isn't envious won't have that need to elevate themselves over others and judge others. If you have the desire to elevate yourself over others, that means you also have the potential for slander and strife and gossip. You see, boastfulness, haughtiness, envy, slander, strife, gossip, those were all the sins that Paul described to the non-religious, immoral, licentious person in chapter 1. And now Paul looks at the judgmental religious man and says, you who judge them, you're doing the same things. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. Why? Verse 2, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. When you judge someone for their sins, you too are being boastful, haughty, conceited, envious, and slanderous. Now, let me clarify. Paul isn't saying that it's wrong to identify someone else's sin. It's not wrong to merely point out or identify a sin. That's what Paul's been doing this whole time throughout the book of Romans. He's identifying everyone's sins. You can identify sin without being judgmental. Identifying someone's sins is acknowledging that a mistake has been made. Judging someone takes it a step further and you look down on that person because of the mistake they've made, as if you're now better than them. You know, say someone commits corruption. You know, you'd be angry at them, yeah, because they took money that belongs to other people for themselves. In other words, you're angry at them because they've elevated themselves above others. Now, do you identify corruption as wrong? Of course, that, that's fine. It's a must even. But when you cross that line and you say that you are above them because you've never committed corruption, to say that um, you are better than them because you've never committed corruption, what you did there is you elevated yourself above them and thus you're guilty of what you just accused them for doing. If someone cheats on their spouse, right? What have they done? They've elevated themselves over others, their family in this case. You got to address that. You got to identify that. But the second you say that you're better than them because you've never cheated on your spouse, what you did there is elevate yourself above them and thus guilty of what you just accused them for doing. And okay, of course, yes, it's not the same, right? Being judgmental and having the internal inclinations of self-elevation by judging others internally, that's different than actually acting it out in corruption or adultery. Of course, of course it's a different in action, but the seed is the same, you see? the potential, the capacity, the need. It, it's there. It shows that it's there. The external outworkings may be different, but the internal disposition is the same. That's why Paul said in verse 2, you're guilty of the very same things. 
And by the way, look at Paul's focus in chapter one when he lists all those sins uh, that talked about the non-religious, you know, uh, immoral people. They're all internal issues. Boastfulness, envy, haughtiness, jealousy, those are all internal attitudes, internal dispositions that you can easily hide behind good behavior. Those are the kind of sins that we can as easily commit drunk in a club on Saturday night or while we're praying at church on Sunday morning. It's hard to tell. How can you tell? It's an internal disposition. I can be committing some of those sins right now as I'm preaching, and none of you would know it. How could you? I'm preaching. Surely, preachers never feel a desire to boast. Surely, preachers never feel a desire to be haughty or self-elevate while they're preaching, right? Pastors never struggle with those things. And Paul turns up the heat a little bit in verse 4. It says, look, religious people, do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? You know, every now and then we see church folk holding up signs, you know, that says, repent, turn back. How long do you think God will tolerate this? And we see these people holding up uh, these signs and saying those things where? In abortion clinics, in prostitution districts, in places like that. Well, you see here in verse 4, Paul is holding up the same sign, and he's saying the same things, but you know where he's at? He's at church. He's holding up the same signs that we so often hold towards others. He's asking us the same questions that we often ask others. How long do you think God's going to tolerate this? Tolerate what, Paul? I'm praying. I'm at church. I'm, I'm not doing anything wrong. And to that, Paul responds in verse 5, Yes, you are. Your knees may be bent. Your arms may be raised. But your heart, Paul says in verse 5, is hard and impenitent. So what if you're praying at church? The Pharisee Jesus rebuked for judging the tax collector in Luke 18 was also praying at church. It's a hard issue. The same seed of sin, the same capacity for self-elevation that Paul described the irreligious person having in chapter 1, that same seed of sin Paul ascribes to religious people in chapter 2. When he said everyone needs forgiveness, Paul means everyone. Now, there's a second reason as to why it's trickier to convince a religious person of their need for forgiveness. It's not just because their sins are so often hidden under good external behavior, but also the type of sins religious people commit usually don't have as immediate of a consequence compared to other kinds of sins, which leads us to our second point. Our, their sins don't have immediate consequences. Okay, let's continue in verse 5. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Now, I want, to, want us to notice the timing in the verse here as to when Paul says the seemingly moral superior judgmental person will experience the consequences of their sin. It's on the day of wrath, the day of judgment, referring to the future, not quite yet now. Now contrast this with Paul's rebuke last week in chapter 1 when he was talking to the irreligious, immoral person you know, who perhaps sinned in more blatant ways. Remember the consequences? Paul said, look, if you guys keep doing this, you're going to end up elevating sexual identity and you're going to experience all the consequences of that. 
right? Now, if you have questions about that, I encourage you to listen to last week's sermon. I know there, there's a lot there, but what I want to focus on now specifically is the immediacy of the consequences that people in chapter 1 are experiencing. They're experiencing it now, today. And, and we know this to be true, right? If you're doing drugs and you're getting hammered every night, <laughs> the consequences of that, it's pretty immediately recognizable. But if you're at church with a haughty, boastful, superior heart every Sunday, no one might immediately feel the consequences of your sin. You yourself can be singing and praying and tithing and listening to sermons like this one for years without realizing it's there. And to further emphasize this point, Paul in verse 5 uses an irony, which if you know Paul's writing, he does that a lot. Look at verse 5. Do you see that phrase, storing up there? You're storing up, religious people, wrath for yourself. The phrase storing up in Jewish literature is almost always used in a positive context. When, when someone on earth here is storing something up, it's usually meaning that they're doing good things that will result in a future blessing, right? Remember, Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, store up for yourselves, what? Treasures in heaven. Proverbs 2, 7, for those who are upright, God stores up wisdom. Almost always in Jewish literature, when the phrase storing up appears, it's used to describe someone doing something good that will result in a future blessing. But Paul here is using the term, ironically, in a negative light. He's saying you're storing up for yourselves what? Not blessings, wrath. It's ironic because the kinds of behavior that religious people do are the kinds of behavior that most people would look out from the outside and say, wow, you know, what a great person. Look at them pray. Look how much they tithe. Look at all the Bible verses hanging on their walls. You know, surely they're storing up treasures in heaven. <laughs> and Paul here is ironically saying, oh, they're storing up something, all right. And we hear that and we think, that's just, you know, isn't that a bit mean? <laughs> that's a bit unnecessary, right? That's a bit too strong of a statement. But Paul thinks that it's necessary. Look, he's not doing this because he hates religious people who are Pharisees. He, too, was a religious Pharisee. He's doing it because he really wants them to receive the gospel. Any kind of addict needs an abrupt wake-up call. Any kind of addict needs a loving intervention, especially self-addicts. Because these self-addicts would never admit that they have this problem. They'd never admit that they're struggling with superiority. They're struggling with anything. They'd listen to the sermon and they think, I'm, I'm above feeling superior. And look, if you don't feel like this passage refers to you, if you're listening to the sermon and you're thinking of your spouse and you're saying, oh, I'm so glad that they're hearing this. You know, they, they really need to hear this. Yeah, if, if, if you've been a Christian for a long time and if you've heard enough Tim Keller sermons about legalism and you say, look, you know, I get it, okay? I've read Prodigal God. I've been a Christian for a while now. I'm good. I'm, I don't struggle with this anymore. If, if you're reminded of the Pharisee in Jesus' parable earlier who, who said, thank God I'm not as bad as a sinful tax collector. If you, if you remember that Pharisee and you think to yourself, thank God I'm not as bad as that judgmental Pharisee. If we think any of those thoughts above, I want to propose that we might be more immersed in self-elevation than we realize. And I only have the audacity to say that because those are all the sentences that I've said myself. I... Uh, might regret saying this on YouTube, but during my seminary education, I took a minor in pastoral counseling and learned quite a, uh, quite a bit about 
personality disorders and the DSM and all that kind of stuff. And and uh, one of the things that I did in, in the in my minor is I took a personality disorder test in, in one of my classes. And you know, it's this thing has these circles, and you kind of circle uh, one of the answers, and and they put it through a processor, and they they tell you, you know, the result. And I, I don't know how accurate you know it was, and but it it shows that when it comes to disorders and personality disorders and stuff like that, all of us are actually in some kind of spectrum, right? All of us have some tendency. Now, it may not be in disorder level, but all of us have tendencies for depression or uh, obsessive compulsive or anxiety or dependence and, and, and things like that. And you know which, uh, which uh, uh, disorder was my highest one in the spectrum? It was a narcissistic disorder. <laughs> Now, okay, the line didn't reach disorder level, okay? But it was kind of worrying of how high it was. And that made me study a lot about it. And, and the consensus out there is that the problem for, you know, narcissists is not that they love themselves too much, but it's that they love an idealized, grand, grandiose version of themselves. They're not in love with themselves. They're in love with an inflated self-image that they've conjured up. Why? Why do they need to fabricate that? Well, usually because there's actually deep insecurity and disappointment at who they actually are. So they have to conjure up this, this ideal version of self. Narcissism is, is deeply rooted um, in insecurity. We fabricate an ideal version of ourselves because we have a hard time loving the real one. And what's a good tool, you know? If we're gonna fabricate a better version of ourselves, what's a good tool to use? Religion. Now, I'm a, I'm a Christian, I'm a pastor, so obviously I'm not saying that's all religion adds up to, that's all my religion adds up to. No, 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 it's not what I'm saying. But there is something about following all the rules and following all the laws uh, that religion has that elevates the self, that fabricates a version of self that is better than, than, than perhaps the real one, which leads us to our last point. Why religious people have a hard time seeing their sin, seeing, seeing you know, themselves, warts and all? It's because... They possess the law. Okay, let's get back to the passage. What we see here in verses 6 to 11 is that God's requirement for innocence, it's high. It's high. God's pretty much saying that if you fail once, it doesn't matter who you are, you're guilty, and you're no longer innocent. Now, before we go off and say, oh, you know, see, the God of the Bible is just too judgmental. The standards are too high. Paul here continues to show us that those standards are actually our standards as well. How so? Let's start off looking at God's standards, okay? We'll see that in order to be declared innocent, you can't fail even once, no matter who you are, okay? Where do we see that? First, verse 7 to 8. Paul says, To those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. The word patient there in verse 7 doesn't mean like patient as in you're waiting for your food at, at your table. Patience there means constancy, consistently, persistently. In other words, without fail. So if we want to be declared as innocent by God, Paul claims here that we can't fail, not even once. Internally and externally, we, we have to be pure. We have to be constantly uh, in obedience. And also, uh, God's standard is it doesn't matter who you are, Paul says. Look at verses 9 to 11. Whether you're Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. He repeats this twice. Whether you're Jew or Greek, it doesn't matter. God shows no partiality. In other words, God does not exempt a wrong just because it happened once or because of who you are in life. And before we say that those standards are just too high and unrealistic, I, I want to propose that those are actually our standards for innocence as well. How so? 
if someone steals your friend's wallet, right, and your friend comes to you angry and upset, what are you going to say? You're not going to say, okay, but, but hold on now. You know, how many times has this person stolen a wallet before? Is this his first time doing it? Because if this is his first time offense, first time offenses don't really count. If they fail just this once, they're not guilty. You're not going to say that. Frequency doesn't matter. You're also not going to say, I hope, well, let's take a look at how important this person is. You know, what do they do? Are they, are they a cop? Are they a judge? Are they a politician? Are they a pastor? Because, you know, certain people get exceptions. No, you're not going to say those things. I hope you won't. See, both we and God would say, I hope, that a wrong doesn't get dismissed just because it happened once or because a person committing it has a particular status. That's what justice is. But see, sometimes it's easy for religious people to forget this. It's easy for religious people to forget that the standard of justice, God's impartiality, verse 11 says, applies to them as well. And how do I know that sometimes it's easy for religious people to forget this? Because the passage says so, and also because I'm a religious person who struggles with this, who often forgets this as well. I know exactly what Paul means. It's easy for me to forget God's justice applies uh, to me. He's impartial. Look at verse 13. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who are justified, who are declared as innocent. See, religious people, you know what we do? We hear the law a lot. The law here referring to the Torah, the law of Moses, right? The first uh, five books of the Old Testament. And by the way, how many religions have at least acknowledged uh, the Torah uh, in their books or have it in their books? There are quite a few. Christians have it in their Bible. Catholics have it in their Bible. The Quran has it, right? Uh, Judaism uh, has it, uh, of course. Actually, you know, Mormonism uh, acknowledges it as well, says that obeying the Ten Commandments is necessary for our exaltation. So religious people, we have the law, okay? We, that, at least what it's referring to there. And the temptation for us who have the law, right, is to think that somehow because we possess the law, because we hear it preached a lot, because we meditated on it a lot, because we memorize it a lot, because we print them out and hang them all over our walls a lot, we somehow think that that somehow makes God more willing to overlook our mistakes more than others. It makes us feel cleaner, Reading the Bible in the morning, you know, having our quiet times, having it on our keychains, hearing a sermon, doing all these things gives us a sense of shalom as if God is more pleased with us because we have it everywhere and around us. We possess it because we, we read it, we study it, we hear it. But Paul here in verse 13 is saying, not necessarily. What matters isn't if you've read it or heard it or have it. What matters is if you do it. Now, again, that sounds harsh, but, but it's not. If, if, if someone commits a murder and goes to court and tells a judge on court, hold on, yes, I murdered, but, but I know the law. I really, really know it. You know, I have the hard copy of the Una Una Dasar laws of Indonesia on my bookshelf. I've, I've framed it all over my walls in my house. I've memorized Article 338, which is all about murder. I've heard people teach on it a lot. I've attended multiple studies on it. I've also taught it myself. I've even written books about it. I really know the law, I promise. <laughs> What's the judge going to say to the murderer? That's great. But did you obey it? <laughs> the fact that a murderer has Article 3 through 8 of Indonesia's Uude tattooed in their arm doesn't make them innocent. Have they obeyed it? It's not the hearers of the law who's going to be declared righteous, it's the doers.
God's not going to hold us, religious people, less accountable to doing it just because we've read it a lot or memorized it a lot. He is impartial. And Paul continues to make this interesting claim in verses 14 to 15. He goes on to say that non-religious people too have failed to uphold their book of law. And we're thinking, what? How can non-religious people have a book of law if they don't have a religion? Well, they may not have a hard copy of it, but they open it up all the time. They refer to it all the time, just like religious people do. How? When? Every day. Even when they do something as simple as apologize or demand for an apology. Think about it. When you apologize to someone, you're not saying, fine, I'll apologize because you think what I did is wrong. That's, that's not a true apology. A true apology is saying, I'm sorry, what I did is wrong. And you would expect that from others too, by the way. When they apologize to you, what are you expecting them to say? What do you want to hear from them? I'm sorry that you think what I did was wrong. That's not what you want to hear from them. What, what you demand from them is for them to say, I'm sorry, what I did is wrong. What they did to you is wrong. Think about that. When you say what I did is wrong or what you did is wrong, you know what you just did? You just opened up your transcendent book of laws in which you hold yourself and other people accountable too. There is a law. There is, there is a standard. Now, you won't find this book on your bookshelf. You know where it is. Paul tells us where it is in verses 14 to 15. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. Even though they do not have the law, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. In other words, the book of law is in your conscience. Okay, that was, that was a lot. I try to pack that in there. So let me just summarize. Bottom line, here's what Paul's saying. Everyone, look at your book of law. Look at the laws in which you hold yourself and other people accountable to. Christians, look at your Bible. Catholics, look at your Bible. Jews, look at the Tanakh. Muslims, open up your Quran and look at the law there, right? The, uh, the, the, the Torah there. Mormons, look at the law of Moses that you acknowledge in your book. Look at, look at the law. And if you're not religious, look at your own conscience. Can you call yourself innocent based on those laws? Are you innocent? But I've only broken it once. Remember, that excuse doesn't exempt you from guilt based on your own standards. But I'm a pastor, I'm a priest, I'm a religious leader. Remember, who you are doesn't make you less accountable. Can you really look at the book of the law and claim with confidence that you're innocent? Because I can't. When Paul says everyone needs forgiveness, he means everyone. No one, whether, whether you're religious or not, no one can look at themselves and say they're innocent. We know we're guilty. And the temptation now, when we see our guilt, the temptation now is to fabricate and conjure up a grander version of self. So we hide by behaving better, by being more religious, by eating local and recycling, by posting up you know, social uh, justice uh, comments on our, on our social media. I'm not saying those things are bad. No, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying, it, it doesn't make us innocent. It doesn't make us innocent. The only way a guilty person can be declared innocent is if the judge somehow declares you innocent and cancels your legal debt. 
That is the only way. Nothing we do can make us innocent. And to that, Paul ends in verse 16, revealing to his readers that the judge has done just that for his people. Look at verse 16. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Who's the judge? Here, who will sit on the throne on the future day of judgment? Jesus. And have we ever read how the book of Revelations claim Jesus will appear on that day? As a judge, glorious, yes, but also with scars upon his body. John said in, in the book of Revelations that he saw a glorious lamb, but it was as if it had been slain. And what are those scars for? Why does this judge have them? He has those scars because he loved you to a point where he would even die for you. And look, religious people, he died not for the fabricated, grander version of yourself. He died for you. The gospel Paul's referring to in verse 16 is that your judge will sit on his throne. Having already paid for your sins, the question is, will you receive it? Will you take hold of it? Or will you continue to hold on to this grander version of yourself that does not need forgiveness, fabricated by the makeup of religion? We can't escape it. What's the good news of the Bible? That your judge paid it all. See, Christianity, understood properly, shouldn't create judgmental, grandiose people, but meek, lowly people because they've experienced a love that reaches beyond their fabricated selves. Stop hiding behind the law and run to Jesus. Everyone needs forgiveness. Whoever you are, whatever you've done. Let's pray. Father, it is clear that we are all guilty. Jew, Gentile, religious, not religious, black, white, Asian, whatever, rich, poor, the law holds us accountable and our own conscience holds us accountable that we acknowledge, therefore, a grander standard of morality beyond us that can only come from a personal, ultimate being. We're all accountable and we suppress that knowledge by mustering up a grandiose version of ourselves. How? By behaving better, by doing good things and even religious things. Help us see that the law, we cannot obey it perfectly. And even if we do externally, internally, our hearts are rotten. We know that. We don't want to admit it because we're scared to say that if our hearts are rotten, therefore we're not lovable. The Bible disagrees. The Bible says that God, the judge, loved us even while we were yet sinners with rotten hearts. You came and died for our sins. You took our shame upon yourself. And you loved not the fabricated version of us, but us. I pray, Father, that as we hear that good news and gospel, we would continue to do good, to pray, of course, to read the Bible, yes, to go to church and worship and tithe and do all these things, yes, but not do so because we need to somehow pay for our own sins. Not do so because we are not yet convinced that we're innocent 
I pray that we do so because we know that by the blood of Christ, we have been declared innocent and righteous. And now we do those things for the glory of the name of the Lamb that was slain for our sins. Help us believe in this, Father, so that we may continue to push on and stride in obedience to your law, not to earn innocence, but because we've been declared innocent by a judge who took all of our guilt upon himself for our sake and for the sake of your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.